Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Great show ahead of us tonight and a great panel in the studio, Aina Nilana. How are you, Aina? How are you, Derek? I'm great. All good. And at home in Malahide is Dr. Richard Collins. Now, Richard, we're going to be talking about octopus, octopi, octopuses, whatever you're having yourself very shortly. You're a fan. Yes, I am indeed a fan. As a result of a film, a naturalist named Craig Foster made a film at the Cape of Storms at the southern tip of Africa, a place where we were, Derek. We yes. went to the, on our way out to Dyer Island to see the, the Great Whites and things. We went there and it's an extraordinary place. Well, there he used to go into the kelp forests every day and have an encounter with an individual octopus and he did that throughout that octopus's life. Extraordinary stuff. And Aileen Ilana, I have news for you about your mate Chris Baines. Do you remember Chris Baines? Chris Baines? Yeah. Chris Baines. Oh yes, yes. Yes, I interviewed him at the beginning of the year. He was the man who had written the wonderful book about gardening for wildlife in the 1980s when it was neither popular nor profitable and then he had brought out an updated version of this and we were looking back on the changes in the 40 years. Why? What has he done now? Well he was in Dublin at the weekend taking part in a park run because he's into that kind of stuff and he sent me a short voice message have a listen hi derek it's chris baines here i've just had a wonderful weekend in malahide just uh, north of dublin as you know uh traveled over from hollyhead on the ferry and had the joy of watching a whole lot of harbour porpoises swimming and leaping in front of the boat great weekend wonderful weather i came over to do park run which is uh, something I try and do every Saturday. But I thought you'd be interested to hear that my book, How to Make a Wildlife Garden, which uh, first came out, launched at Chelsea Flower Show all those years ago, has just been shortlisted for the Practical Gardening Book of the Year. And the interesting thing is that when it was first published back in 1985, the Royal Horticultural Society was so confused by the whole idea of wildlife and gardening that my Chelsea Flower Show medal was inscribed to J.C. Baines for his wildfire garden. So now the new edition, which is much redesigned and expanded and has given me a chance to look back over the last 30 or 40 years of wildlife gardening, is now published by that same Royal Horticultural Society as an RHS companion to wildlife gardening. So that's a measure of how far we've come, I think. Although the last 30, 40, 50 years has been pretty catastrophic for wildlife, one of the few glimmers of positiveness has been the success of gardens for wildlife. So I think uh, I can be pretty chuffed that the RHS has finally recognised that this is an approach to gardening that really makes a difference. And I thought you'd like to know. So there you are now, Aina. Good news for Chris Baines and wildlife gardeners, I suppose. Yeah, it's great to see that at long last this is becoming flavour of the month. Flavour of the month. Anyway, I've got a lovely piece of music for you now. Are you have ready? You? Yeah, have you. Here we are. Yeah. I'm sure you'll know it. I'm sure you'll know it. In 1841 When Ronnie Drew was born Me bridges I put on Me bridges I put on to work upon the railway, the railway. I am weary of the railway. So, <laughs> tell the listener why I'm playing that for you. <laughs> and he had the railway. Well, I was talking to the people who work upon the railway last week down in Port Leash. Oh. It was their continuous improvement event. There must have been over 200 people who work upon the railway, walk the line every day to make sure it's in good order. And of course, as there's so much railway track all over the country, they encounter loads of wildlife and biodiversity. They do. So this was what I was talking to them about, the biodiversity that there is on the railway. And because the railways are 
dangerous places. They're usually protected by hedgerows and, you know, people don't go near them. So they're wonderful wildlife corridors in actual fact. And bats and things like, you know, butterflies, insects, bees, all of those kind of things. In fact, somebody subsequently then sent me in a picture of a frog crossing the railway line. <laughs> Fortunately, there was no train coming at that moment and the frog escaped. So that was what I was speaking to them and raising their awareness. But should it mean they being out every day on the railways? They see it. They see a lot of it indeed. So Paddy on the railway, I'm telling you, he was doing more than just breaking stones. In 1845 and Daniel O'Connell, he was alive. Daniel O'Connell, he was alive and working on the railway. I was wearing flower hedges, digging ditches, pulling switches, cutting ditches. I was working on the railway. Let's get on with the programme and I'm delighted to welcome to the studio Amy Courtney. Amy is a neuroscientist at the MRC Laboratory in Cambridge, but originally from Dublin. You're very welcome to the programme, Amy. Thank you very much. Now, give us a little bit about your background, if you would, please. Yes, so um, I am I'm Irish. I've lived in Dublin until I finished my PhD. I did my PhD in UCD, where I was studying the evolution of nervous systems in a jellyfish-type creature. And then I moved to Cambridge four years ago to study the nervous system of octopuses. So I guess I'm a comparative neurobiologist. I like studying different animals, try and understand how brains control behaviours, and hopefully that will help us understand the human brain. Welcome we start by explaining what exactly an octopus is? An octopus is from the group of animals called cephalopods. So that is the cuttlefish, the squid and the nautilus. Octopuses um, are, they have eight arms, uh, which is actually different from the cuttlefish and the squid because they have eight arms and also two tentacles. Um, octopuses have um, their brain distributed all over their body. Uh, they have a large brain in their head and then also neurons within their arms. And then their head is actually called a mantle. So this is their head and their body combined. And within their body, they have the reproductive system, their stomach and actually three hearts as well. Three hearts? <laughs> yes. Why do they need three hearts? <laughs> they, I think one of the hearts is for the circulation in their whole body and then two of them are for the circulation in their gills, apparently. And then they have a beak as well, haven't they? A yes. big, strong, chitinous beak that they actually can eat hard things with. They're not entirely soft and that's all that's ever left when the rest of them have vanished. Yeah, absolutely. Because they, they usually eat like crabs and things of harder shells so they use their beak to get in there and they also have a tongue that has all these spikes on it and they can drill their tongue into the crab and then they can inject this toxin that will also paralyse the crab. And is crab their favourite food? Seems to be, yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so we like the octopus and we like the crab it seems too. And are they found in all the waters of the world? Yes, they seem to be found in most waters. Uh, I study the uh, an octopus species called Octopus vulgaris, which is known as a common octopus. And that's what you would also see around coasts in Ireland and in the Mediterranean. And this is the type of octopus if you're in Portugal and Spain and you're eating octopus, probably be Octopus vulgaris. So you have them in the lab there in Cambridge, have you? So I also work with a lab in Belgium and they have octopus. I usually work with octopus babies. So the octopus babies are in Belgium. And then I'm a molecular biologist. So a lot of my work will be working with the DNA and microscopes. So that kind of thing doesn't need live octopus. <laughs> Tell us about the lines of suckers on their arms. Some of them have two lines of suckers. Others have one line. I presume that's different species because some of them are better eating than others. And you're recommended to get the one with two rows of suckers if you want something that's less tough. They so seem just... to have, yeah, they seem to have two rows as yeah, far as I yeah. can remember. And I think it's about 300 suckers per arm as well. And the suckers do what they say on the tin. They suck (laughs) and they can attach to things. They can attach to animals. They can attach to the seafloor. And they use that to crawl around and catch their prey. Now, Amy, Richard Collins is patiently waiting at home to speak with you. Richard, say hello to Amy. Hello, Amy. It's great to talk to you. You're studying the most interesting animal of all. And in Cambridge, it's a beautiful city, I must say. I think it's gorgeous. Of all the churches in the world, I think King's College Chapel is the most beautiful I've ever seen. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Although I don't like that Rubens up there. It doesn't fit in. However, what do you think? Yeah, I, I thought King's College Chapel was stunning as well. They do lovely choir services there. So I've been to one of them before as well. Oh, it's Lovely. beautiful. Yeah. God, it would rub off on you. You'd make you a genius even if you weren't one, and I'm sure you are. Richard, <laughs> we're here to talk about octopuses. We're not here to talk about churches and King's College and Cambridge. So will you ask Amy something about octopus? <laughs> yes, Amy, Amy, uh, I wonder if you have seen Craig Foster's film, uh, which is called um, My Octopus Teacher. I have, now, yes. 
it makes extraordinary claims. Uh, are they valid? So a lot of the claims are made are fairly anecdotal and now I think we're kind of coming into the point where there's a lot of uh, octopus re- researchers getting a lot more popular and people are more interested. So we're now getting to dig into the more rigorous experiments to kind of figure out if those things are actually true. Now what are the claims? Don't leave the listener or me behind. <laughs> so there's a lot of claims about, I guess, that they can recognise uh, different human beings. So in the documentary, this man has this relationship with this octopus and he comes to visit him every day uh, in the sea in the wild um, and there has been some research that's been done on this where they had some humans coming to visit octopuses and they had masks on so that they looked the same every day and one of the people that visited the human had um, always gave food and it was always really nice and the, so they call that the nice human and then the other person was always like poking them with a stick and then they, they noticed that the octopuses had different reactions when the different humans came in depending on whether they were nice or not mm. so it did give some indication that they might be recognising them and associating them with these negative negative or positive things. And that this was an indication then of the ability of their brains to recognise. And, you know, if they had just visual, they looked different. So how did they recognise them? Was it the way they moved? Was it the smell of them? How would an octopus in a watery environment recognise a human outside? Yeah, that's an interesting question because there was actually some um, images that I saw that they tried to recreate what it looked like from the octopus perspective. And basically, they're obviously looking through the water at the human. So it's like this blurry picture of a human being. But octopuses have really amazing visual capabilities. Um, So I think a lot of people think that it is happening visually, um, that they can differentiate the different patterns in the faces. But yeah, so their visual capabilities are really amazing. And this is one of the reasons they think that they're so good at uh, camouflaging into the environment. So I don't know if you've seen videos of how they can uh, change the colour and texture. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They can look like a completely different animal altogether. Yeah, absolutely. There's one octopus called the mimic octopus that actually pretends that it's like a lionfish or a snake or a flounder. So when it's in certain types of waters, then predators think that it's this other species that might be poisonous. So they won't actually try and um, eat them then in that case. Amy, if you take uh, Craig Foster's film, now you say it's anecdotal, but he actually has footage. Now there's a, su- such extraordinary sequences. There's one where these pyjama sharks attack his octopus mm. and the octopus is clever enough to get onto the shark's back at precisely the place where the shark's teeth cannot reach it yeah. and it swims around and he has footage of this it, you, it's not anecdotal anymore oh, yeah, there's footage and until, <laughs> until it goes straight into a kelp and then the octopus slips off quietly this is such extraordinary behaviour it is it, it's impossible to, to think of it as other than highly sophisticated intelligent uh, behaviour and instant decision making extraordinary decision making this is in an animal that lives for only two years at most yeah now crazy. if we look at animals that are very sophisticated there's two things about them they live socially octopuses don't live socially they're solitary anti-other octopuses and they are also long-lived what's the use in having a big brain and doing all kinds of interesting things if you can't memorize it and if you can't pick up such ideas from other octopi this is a weird thing how how is it possible does it are we all wrong about our theories of social behavior and the evolution of complex behavior Or is this some sort of extraordinary exception? How is it possible? Yeah, so there seems to be two theories of how intelligence evolved. And one of them is that of social creatures. So we need to have very big brains to be able to navigate like complicated relationships. And also, we usually we have very long lifespans. We learn from our parents and all of that contributes to that. But octopuses and other cephalopods, which are cuttlefish and squid, uh, go completely against that type of idea. And so the alternative theory of why octopuses evolve such intelligence is because they do have a short lifespan, so they have to be quite good at learning quite quickly. So being intelligent means that you are very flexible. You can adapt to situations. So having a big brain is important for that. And also because octopuses and other cuttlefish are related to snails and slugs, they're part of the mollusk phylum. So their cousins, like snails, have shells which protect them from predators, but octopuses don't have a shell. They lost that during evolution. So their bodies are very vulnerable. So being able to evolve this intelligence meant they were better able to survive in these dangerous type of waters. 
But you have each octopus is starting from scratch. It doesn't have a parent to tell it what to do or mm. to, uh, how to avoid danger or whatever. It's got to do everything from scratch. Mm. Now, how is it possible that it can do such extraordinary things without seeing other octopi doing it? Uh, and another strange thing about that film is that Craig Foster actually develops a relationship with the octopus and the octopus swims cautiously towards him and extends arms mm. and he can cuddle the octopus. This is in an antisocial animal. What on earth is going on? This is extremely mysterious. There must be no more interesting creature around than this. Before you answer all of that, what yeah. do you mean they have to learn all of this stuff on their own? Is the, you mean put it in context for people, Richard? We haven't all seen the movie. I certainly have. <laughs> you should. Well, <laughs> well, the movie is is extraordinary. It's a philosophical kind of reflective movie and very convincing. Now, what I think is interesting: each octopus is born. There are a million hatch out. The parents die. They're on their own. A tiny number of them survive. You are all alone on a desert island, almost sort of thing if you're an octopus. Now, you have to learn all these extraordinary skills, riding on sharks' backs, for instance, and able to leave the water. This is extraordinary, too. When it's threatened by one of these pyjama sharks, it actually gets out of the water onto the land and hangs around for a while until the shark gets bored and moves away, and then it goes back in. It does strange things that Foster didn't understand, like punching fish. Why does it punch fish? Why does it decorate its den with the dead parts of its prey. I mean, it just blows all theories out of the water. Amy, what do you think? You I'm you lost here. Get me out of this. I, I have to throw out all the theories with this animal because he yeah. breaks so many rules. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people like to describe them as like aliens on our planet because they just don't really conform to any ideas of you know, how we think a big complicated brain will look like and the type of uh, behaviours that will lead to them being very intelligent. They don't interact with their parents. They're very antisocial. They will spend their whole lives on their own and they'll just hang out in their dens and then they'll go out looking for food during the day and then come back to their dens. So that's their entire life for two years until they get to the point where they're looking for a mate. And that's the only time they really are social, if you can call that social. Um, But they also have cannibalistic tendencies. So if they come in contact with another octopus that's smaller than them, they will also try to eat it quite aggressive creatures. (laughs) You hit on an interesting idea there. People are searching for life elsewhere in the universe, Mm. you know. It seems to me that they should look at the octopus because the octopus is in an alien world and yet it is extraordinary. Surely it implies that life and complexity can evolve in the most unlikely circumstances. It's an interesting idea that you presented there. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we see like the cartoon depiction of aliens I think you could easily see something that looked like an octopus you know they have this big what looks like a head it's actually their body and their head combined they have these two big eyes and in between their eyes they have a a large proportion of their brain and then they have the eight arms that extend out and the arms also have as we call mini brains inside of them too so their nervous system is distributed all over their body which is very unusual because most of our neurons are found in our brain and in our spinal cord So another interesting thing that's been proposed is that they think that octopuses may have some level of consciousness, but not only consciousness in their brain, but they think that it could be distributed in different parts of their body. So maybe there's some level of consciousness in their arms and some level of consciousness in their heads. But that needs to be more. more I saw an interesting video on YouTube where an octopus had to go through a watery maze, but also had to emerge out of the water in order to get some food that was Mm. left. It had to, first of all, realise the food was in there. Yeah. And then it had to make its way through this maze. And it did within a couple of minutes. It was quite extraordinary. And the point that was being made was that these arms are more than just a feeling apparatus. Absolutely. So there's been studies where. Very old studies I don't think would get ethical approval now where they've removed the arms and the arms are still able to grab for food and then point it back towards where the mouth would have been. So they seem to have a lot of autonomy. <laughs> that that sounds like something out of a, out of a science Horror fiction movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. In fact, they can cut off their own arms if they want to. Yes. And then when they have cut off their arm, the hole that's left, they have a muscle that they just close it up so they don't bleed or Absolutely, exude yeah. any of their blue, what's called the blood, blue blood, the blue yeah. blood, because they have copper holding onto it rather than iron. So that they, they can detach their arms. But if the arms are so intelligent, why would they want to detach them? 
So one case where they will detach their arm is during reproduction. So we can get into that. It's quite interesting how they reproduce. So um, the um, difference between uh, male and female octopuses is that male octopuses have, um, they call it a sex arm. So the biological term is a hectocotylus, but they can actually deliver sperm through one of their arms. So the males will seek out the females. And as I said, they can be quite antisocial. So they have to do this tentatively. And where do they put it into the female? Let's get the whole works while we're <laughs> yeah, at it. The, they into their funnel so this then leads into their reproductive system within their head body thing that they have at the top called the mantle But this is the beginning is the end because yeah. males die after they've had sex yeah. and the females die after they've finished you know, giving birth and the, and the young are ready to go exactly, so that yeah. when the young are absolutely ready to go both the mother and father are dead yeah. and the act of making them kill them so does the yeah. octopus not know when he's approaching the age of two that this is the end and yeah. maybe stay maybe stay or do they always mate I mean if they didn't mate would they live to be three or four I don't know there's been some I think people are looking into that because trying to understand the hormones that are causing them that are driving them to seek out females and then and eventually that causes their death so I wonder if they took away those hormones if they would actually live longer maybe that would be an interesting experiment I'm sure that wouldn't be ethical either I'm yeah sure. probably not we've got to let them do their thing but I mean, are they, the octopuses are the same group as with squids and, and cuttlefish. Yeah. Now, are they mostly the smartest ones or is there, a, is there a sort of a Gaussian curve of smartness that the squids are nearly as smart and that the cuttlefish are not as smart or is there absolutely no connection at all between them? It's very difficult to say. There's just hasn't, I think people are just fascinated by octopuses. So a lot more research seems to be going into them. But squids and cuttlefish do get a lot of attention. Um, and there's some examples where I'll look for like an example, for example, in learning and memory. I was trying to look into like, you know, so what do we know about octopus learning and memory? And actually there's a lab that looks at cuttlefish in a lot of detail. And they're showing that cuttlefish have like episodic like memory, which means that they can remember like the when, the where of different objects like in in their environment. Usually highly intelligent creatures can do that type of memory. But people assume if cuttlefish can do it, then octopuses can also do it. Richard. Yeah, the Portuguese man of war comes to uh, mind. It is not a single animal, but a kind of a community. Now you have the octopus, which has a central brain and eight other brains, one in each arm. So should we regard it not as an individual, but as a kind of a community, a kind of a committee, each part doing its own thing? Or is this an off-the-wall idea? No, I think that's that's interesting because I've always wondered if whatever happening in the brain, what's happening in the arms might disagree on some things and then which one would like win out <laughs> in that fight. Um, I guess it depends on the context and what information each one has. So, yeah. Apparently a group of octopuses is a consortium. Oh yes, I learned that recently myself. Which is interesting. <laughs> Continue anyway, Richard. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like a committee. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's why it sprung to mind, Richard. Yeah. There's one thing that rather surprises me about your octopus. It's such a brilliant character, a brilliant creature. Yet, the famous consciousness test where a mark is put somewhere on a creature's body yeah. and it's shown a mirror. And then, of course, when it sees it, if it knows that it is itself that's in the mirror, mm. it will investigate the part of the body where the mark is. If it doesn't do that, then it's a sign that it thinks the image in the mirror is of another creature. Now, this is a very antisocial creature. It doesn't tolerate other octopi near it. It should be easy to test whether or not it responds to a mirror positively or negatively, and positively in the sense that it, th- it knows it's itself, negatively in which it concludes that the image in the mirror is of something else. Now, octopi would never see mirrors in the real world. No. Has this been done and what is the result? Yes, they actually did do this recently. Um, and I agree that it has some caveats because they are so antisocial. So yeah, they put a little dot on the octopus's head and put it in front of a mirror and they saw different reactions. Most of the time they did actually attack the mirror. <laughs> so this no. indicates that they may have thought that it was another octopus. But yeah, so that's obviously testing it through visual means. One other study that I saw, again, I don't think would get ethical approval today, was they chopped off the arm of an octopus and presented it with its own arm and the arm of another animal. They would eat the arm of the other animal more often than their own arm. More often. (laughs) So in all the experiments that they tested When things got bad. Yeah. (laughs) Gives a whole new meaning. I'd eat the arm of you. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Can I ask you about personality? Mm. After all, if uh, all these animals, they are all alone, and so they develop their own way of doing things. Are there discernible personality types? It's a kind of Jungian introvert and extrovert kind of division. Mm. So uh, initially looking at personalities came a lot from Aquarius, keeping octopuses in their aquariums. And they would notice that some octopuses would be quite curious and they would work very well in the aquarium displays because, you know, they'd come up and interact with, with people. But then there'd be octopuses that would be more aggressive and more paranoid. And that wouldn't really do well in an aquarium display, obviously. In terms of research on this, I've only seen one paper that looked at it in a lot of detail. So basically a personality just means that they you see variability in their behaviours that's consistent within an individual. And that actually makes behavioural experiments very difficult because if you want to test something in an octopus, then all of them are going to react differently to it. And this is also why it's hard to study things in humans because we're all so different. But yeah, it, um, in that study, it did appear that there were differences in their personality. So some were more curious, some were more aggressive. Um, so yeah, that does seem to be coming out. One thing that occurs to me is that they have an unfair advantage over us mammals because they evolved so much earlier than we did. Mm. We're inclined to look at the in, in the non-vertebrate world, the invertebrate world, as being duller and less complex than uh, us vertebrates. Now, they have had hundreds of millions of years presumably of evolution to do before Mm. we start on the race is there any um, virtue in this kind of idea are they very bright because they have been so long developing it i mean they have all kinds of things they produce venom they they produce ink all kinds of tricks and things the most extraordinary range what do you think yeah, I think that's one of the, the reasons that I got very interested in them because the last common ancestor from humans and octopuses was about 600 million years ago and it looks something like a worm. So then we have these two evolutionary paths where you get humans and other vertebrates with intelligence and then amongst the invertebrates you just get octopuses and cuttlefish and squid popping up with this intelligence. So it's like two different experiments in how to build a big complicated brain and that's why I'm really interested in this because I want to compare, you know, did evolution figure out how to do it in the same way or has it done it in a completely different way? And what can that teach us about how brains work in more generally? Is it true they use tools? Yes, absolutely. So there's one um, octopus called the coconut octopus who will take half uh, coconut shells and this would be in waters where there's not a lot of places for it to hide. So it would take the coconut shell Which along. It's fallen into the water, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. Climb up trees to collect coconut. No, no. <laughs> but they can come out of water. They can yeah. come but out of I water. Well, I just clarified the, the yeah, coconut yeah. shells. The are coconut in the shells water. have fallen into the water, probably from humans uh, letting that happen. Um, and they take the coconut shells along with them. These types of octopuses are also known to be able to walk. So they use two of their arms to walk along the seafloor. And then they put the coconut shell on their head like a little um, hat. And then they're walking along the seafloor so that if predators look down, they just see this like coconut shell drifting along. So it doesn't look like there's any octopus there. It looks like just the water is bringing it along. So this is a way that they can evade predators in open waters. And some people have said that this is uh, evidence that they have the ability to plan into the future, which is a very complicated form of higher cognitive ability. So this is another way that they think that they might be quite intelligent. That is really extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> anyway, Raymond, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Time to say hello to Niall Hatch now, who joins us from his home in County Wicklow. Niall, you were listening in there. Have you any stories about the octopus or any close encounters with an octopus ever? It brings to mind something that I saw that absolutely blew my mind a few years ago. I had the great fortune to be in the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe. Um, I was snorkelling uh, just by myself on a beach. Um, it was actually the exact same beach. For those who are fans of the television programme Death in Paradise, it's the beach where they film that, where, where, the, where the detective's shack is on the beach. That exact beach. This happened right in front of where that shack is on that TV programme. And I saw under the water, I saw uh, what looked like a, like a fish just swimming along, sort of a, a flatfish just swimming along. Long. There was lots of other fish around. It didn't pay too much heat. I saw it getting closer and closer to this rock under the water where there was a crab on top, a small crab. Then all of a sudden, when the fish got close to it, all of a sudden it completely changed shape. It's like one of those transformer toys that you'd see. It just changed. All of a sudden, these tentacles came out. It wasn't a fish at all. It was an octopus that was doing a perfect imitation of a fish. And as soon as it got close to the crab, it just put a tentacle out, grabbed it, and just consumed the whole thing. Just sat there crunching up this crab underneath, using its, its beak in the middle of its body. And it just blew my mind that this creature 
was so well adapted and so intelligent to be able to do this to know that if I look like a fish in the water my prey won't be frightened of me uh, and then all of a sudden just pounce at the last minute it was like something out of a horror film as well if you think of it in Absolutely, those terms and, yeah, and all this was just a, just a few feet in front of my face in the water it was amazing and Niall, it's not just that they can think that, well, if I change my appearance, then my prey won't recognise me. It's the fact that they can actually undergo such metamorphosis as you described. Yes, and while this octopus was feeding on this crab, it changed colour while I was watching it. So when it came in, um, it was quite a pale colour. I'd say sort of a mottled grey, almost greyish sandy colour when I saw it coming in. A bit like, you know, you would see like maybe like like, like, like a soul or something like that as it swam along. Uh, and you wouldn't think too much of that. Then the rock was much darker. And when it landed on the rock and was consuming this crab, it totally changed its colour. So it was the same colour as the rock. So it went from being a light sandy grey to being a much darker grey almost almost a charcoal colour right in front of my eyes. And I just thought, what an incredible animal that is. Absolutely. And I know we say we'll never look at an animal like that again the same way. Well, we won't because actually it might look different. Anyway, Niall, I want to talk to you about something that hit the headlines last week. Now, when Eric Dempsey was on the programme last week and you were talking about the Garden Bird Survey now in its 35th year, Eric said, I'll bet, Niall, when the Garden Bird Survey started with Birdwatch on it, nobody ever thought we'd be ticking off the great spotted woodpecker. And you said, oh, absolutely. And you had a chat about the great spotted woodpecker. And indeed, on our website, you put a link to the documentary we made about the aforementioned woodpecker. And then what happens? Oh, pretty much the next day, all over the news, on radio stations right around the country, talking about great spotted woodpeckers being responsible for outages. The ESB network is gone because of great spotted woodpeckers. So it happened after we were on air. So you might like to explain (laughs) to the listeners what was going on if they missed the story. It was really a real act of serendipity, I think, that this happened just after we were speaking about woodpeckers. They were on everybody's lips. Uh, so, yes, ESB Networks um, had put out uh, a statement apologising for some outages for some of their customers, saying that woodpeckers excavating nesting cavities, nesting holes, in wooden electricity pylons were responsible for, for these outages. Because what it seems what was happening was the woodpecker holes were weakening the structures. And then when we get the storms that we've had so many of recently, those heavy winds would then would, would, would mean that the weaker poles would then snap and fall over and people were without electricity for, for several hours while, they, while the new poles were installed and, and the lines were fixed. Uh, and this is something that in Ireland we haven't had to cope with before because famously we didn't have any woodpeckers in Ireland, at least not as, as a breeding species, just as a very rare visitor. But uh, since about 2005, this species, in particular the great spotted woodpecker, colonised Ireland from Britain and slowly but surely has been working its way across Ireland from its two main original strongholds in County Wicklow and County Down to now populate other counties as well. And as they're going, they're looking for nest sites and wooden electricity pylons would seem to be absolutely perfect for them. So this obviously generated quite a bit of headlines. I was speaking about it on Morning Ireland and then various other radio stations. I've even spoken on Spanish radio about it. That's how widespread this story has become. And a lot of the people, especially in other countries, are surprised that Ireland didn't have woodpeckers until now because woodpeckers and electricity pylons have been an issue in most of the world's countries since we started having electricity pylons. People have been dealing with this since the 19th century. Uh, And yet in Ireland, it's just now... Now we're playing catch up with this. They have woodpeckers in Spain, as far as I know. Oh, what's yep. the name? I know it's the black one with the kind of a red skull cap on it. Almost they, they do. That's the black woodpecker. The that's black Europe's wood, biggest. Wouldn't you know? Yeah. The black woodpecker, of course. But are they not having similar problems there? Well, the, the, the thing is that they have had problems like that in the past, and I'm sure in some areas they still do. But the fact of it is that in most other countries, including throughout much of Britain, where the great spotted woodpecker is a very common bird as well, they tackle it in various ways. Um, there are types of resin that are used apparently to fill in these holes. So they spot where the damage has occurred and then fill them in with this resin uh, that makes the strength of wood and, and that, that then makes them more safer within the storms. You do see um, in, in many of these areas where you have densities of woodpeckers, they stop using wooden poles altogether. They use metal poles or concrete poles. And this is something you'll see quite a bit in, in, in other European countries. Uh, and also as well, what you find in those countries, and this might be a factor here in Ireland, I know it's something that Aina has often spoken about on the programme, our lack of tree cover in Ireland, I think, is, is, is a factor here as well. I want to ask you something else. Now, the breeding season for woodpeckers, for the great spotted woodpecker is... April to May, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. And, you know, that's when the dawn chorus is in full flight and we talk about the dawn chorus and the birds singing to attract a mate and to hold territory. So the very specific reasons for them singing and revealing their location. They don't want to be telling people where they are all the time. Now, I always thought that the drumming of the woodpecker had a similar function. But if that is the case, why would it be drumming in December? 
Well, woodpeckers don't really drum too much in that season. So the woodpeckers are pecking on wood uh, for, for three specific reasons. So one that we discussed there already was excavating a nest cavity. So they're chiseling away at the wood. So, and both male and female do that? Uh, yes, so the male does more of it, but both male and female do that, absolutely. So yes, so it's, it's kind of an equal partnership there. Um, so that's one of the main reasons why they do that. They also will drill practice holes outside the nesting season. Oh. You know, they have to learn how to do it, particularly the young birds. You know, it's the, the, they have to have a few holes under their belt before they choose their nesting one. So that can happen throughout the year. The second thing that they do, and this is the most frequent reason why they're actually excavating wood, it's to get food. They're excavating the beetle larvae that are in that dead or dying wood. There's lots of beetles and other insects will lay their eggs in there and you know, wood boring wasps things like that as well will go in there and they have all these little grubs and the woodpeckers would excavate holes to take those out they have a very very long tongue their tongue is longer than their head and beak combined it wraps around their skull inside the, above their brain case um, and when they get to the hole they stick their tongue out the end is kind of barbed and sticky and can then take the grubs out that way so that's the second reason why they're tapping on wood the third reason is the drumming and that doesn't cause much damage that's not what's weakening the poles some of the reports in some of the newspapers were saying that it was wood pecker drumming that was causing the damage but that, that's a misconception. No. It's not. It's the excavation of the holes. When you hear that fast rat-tat-tat machine gun-like burst from a woodpecker. <laughs> exactly. Very very good impression. Uh, that is them. That's, as you said, that's their song. And you mostly hear that in the springtime. So usually from around March through to April and into early May, um, around the time of the Dawn Chorus, that's when you hear that happening. And that is a territorial function. It's proclaiming a territory, attracting a mate, just like the song of a blackbird or a robin or a blue. So it's maybe looking for grubs or practising. Now, they're not beavers, Now They're not going to bring down the telegraph poles. So how are their outages? Or should I be on TSB networks about that? Well, the ESP networks, what they've said is, as I believe, yes, it's not that the, the woodpeckers are causing you know, such an excavation that the whole pole falls over. What happens is it um, it's weakens the pole and then when stormy weather hits that weak point, especially imagine all that weight of the wires as well, ah, it can see. be blown over and it's more like to snap at that point. And especially if there's been a couple of holes in that pole, it's been weakened. I suppose as well, when the woodpeckers drill on it, they're exposing the inner core of that pylon and that wood to the, the elements because the outsides are treated um, and damp proofed but I suppose what can happen then if there's a hole in it then water can get in fungus can get in it can cause rotting and over the course of a couple of years perhaps then it weakens the pole further and that could cause a collapse So what about preventative measures have they been in touch with you guys have you any suggestions on how to stop the woodpeckers from tapping on wood knock 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 on wood go on have you any suggestions <laughs> for them well, certainly some suggestions. Nobody's been in touch with us in Birdwatch Ireland. We're always happy to help. Um, but we do know that if from other countries, including in Britain and France and Spain and places where these woodpeckers are very common, you do see meshes on trees that, that deter the woodpeckers. You do see at certain heights, because the woodpeckers tend to nest in, in a certain height. They're not going to nest right down by the ground. They'd like to be a certain optimum, several metres off the ground. You do see metal collars sometimes put on these uh, on these pylons. And you do see an increasing use of metal and concrete in these areas too. So certain wraps, I think there's a, there's, there's a plastic wrap that sometimes can be put on these that makes the woodpeckers realise it stops them thinking it's wood they don't they don't see it as a tree perhaps and so they think well this this isn't for me maybe that's what is way. it doing for the woodpecker's head when you see how fast they knock on the wood I mean is it something like 1200 times per day well when you hear that when you hear that little burst of drumming that they do there um, that's a burst in, in the space of just about a second they're hitting it over a dozen maybe up to 20 times it's wow. incredibly rapid when you look at the mechanics of that they're hitting that tree or that telegraph pole or, or electricity pylon face first um, at over 700 miles an hour um, which is absolutely astonishing the the shock that they must experience it's beyond our imagination we'd be killed instantly we wouldn't survive it in, not, not even for not even one one tap you'd be dead um, but woodpeckers have these ligaments in their neck that are reinforced to act like a shock absorber their brains are surrounded by this amazingly shock absorbing liquid as well they're kind of floating there so they don't suffer brain damage from this the beaks are incredibly hard so they're not damaged by this uh, and and the woodpeckers as well when, when they're when they're doing this um, it seems that you know they're, they're somehow able to shut down part of their brain activity so they're not getting damage from it it really is quite remarkable uh, so to think you know what the, the force their brain experiences apparently it's it's been recorded as being up to 20,000 G. Um, even a brief a brief experience of 100 G, so it's 100 times the force of gravity for a human would be fatal. Fighter pilots might experience 20 G apparently when they're in a tight turn that can cause them to black out. So they'll black out, human will black out at that and yet the woodpeckers can withstand a thousand times more force, which is mind-blowing. It is really incredible. But we're all talking about the great spotted woodpecker and before last week there was only ourselves on Mooney Goes Wild talking about it. Now the whole country knows we have woodpeckers in Ireland. So there's something good that's come from it.
We're trendsetters, Derek. I've always said it. We set the agenda. <laughs> anyway, Noel, I'm sure you know Alan McCarthy. He's one of your colleagues from Birdwatch Ireland based in Cork. Oh, that's right. Doing great work with Barnells. So I believe, and Jim Wilson is going to introduce him to us shortly. But first, let's say goodnight to Jim Wilson from his home in Cove. I don't imagine you're getting too many cruise ships in the harbour at this time of year, Jim. Uh, Derek, no. <laughs> it, uh, it's pretty slow now. Uh, things have quietened down a lot. But still, you know, there's a lot of tourists uh, coming to Cove now. Uh, so a great spot, even in the winter. Oh, no, it's beautiful. Uh, I was down there lucky. recently. We're very lucky. Now, listen, Jim, it's been very cold for the past few days. And uh, you did the big uh, What to Feed Garden Birds during the winter for us some years ago. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we launched on the programme last week the Garden Bird Survey, Birdwatch Ireland's 35th year. I know you're heavily involved in it, but you might give people a bit of a suggestion on what they might leave out right now. Peanuts are always a good one in the little mesh feeders. Most um, shopping centres or grocery stores now actually stock these little uh, mesh feeders, metal mesh feeders with uh, that you put peanuts in. Uh, that's a great starter and if you've got a, a young family, it, it can be really good fun uh, for them to keep an eye out and try and identify what's out there. Uh, seed is, is another one, but I find seed on its own, unless it's somewhere really dry, uh, all the time it gets wet and it swells and it goes mouldy but you know some people put it out I, I tend not to unless I have it in a feeder in a, in a nice sheltered spot um, but you can put out a seed cake which is taking seeds general wild bird seed mix and two parts by weight of seed mix to one part by weight of cooking fat or lard as we used to call it and if you if you gently heat the fat, don't boil it mm-hmm. because when you put the, the the seeds into it, you'll cook them basically. Uh, and then you can put them into an old yogurt carton with a string through it upside down, and the birds like blue tits will come and feed out of that. And they get a lot of very valuable energy in these yes. really bitter cold days. So th- they, they'd be the ideas I would say. Also water, water, if you water. Do, if you don't Jim. want it, yeah. If you don't want to put food out. If you can put out water in a in a dish or an upturned dustbin lid or something like that, don't have vertical sides on it because they're not they don't like plunging into the deep ends. They like to walk in. So where you've got the water where it starts off dead shallow and they can find their own depth and have a wash. And it, you you can have great fun with that too. But both are both are important. Don't forget the garden birds. They need our help. And when Absolutely. they don't need our help, they'll find food elsewhere. That's what Jim would say. Is that not? <laughs> That's correct. There you go. All right. Did you hear Eric and Terry talk about the short-eared owl winter visitor to Ireland last week from County Wicklow? Have you got them in Cork? I'm wondering. Of course, boy. <laughs> How dare you even suggest? Oh, very question. dare me. Take it as a given. We've got lots of them at the moment. And as uh, Eric and Terry wonderfully put it last week, they, it's just crazy the number of short-eared dolls that have come to the country this year. Alan will speak a little bit about that. I, I asked him a few questions, being the owl expert. But we even have one here at Harper's Island Wetlands which is quite incredible. It was our first record of one during the week and they're incredible. And what's really good about them is they fly around during the day a lot of the time, unlike the barn owl. Mm. So if you're out and about uh, where there's marshland or reed bed, you might be lucky enough to... And, you, you know, some people do a double take and they say, that's not an owl. It's the middle of the day. Well, the short-eared owl... Very possible to see it. And as I say, we have one here in Harper's Island Wetland. And there's even a spot in East Cork where they now have counted up to five different short-eared dolls in the one area. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned Harper's Island Wetlands, and I know you're going to mention it again right now because next week on the programme, we'll have the panel suggest their annual Christmas gift ideas for nature lovers. You're going to start right now and you're suggesting a visit to Harper's Island Wetlands. Tell us why. Yeah, Derek, you know, I was, I was thinking of, you know, what sort of present could you give the listeners to the programme? And I would like to offer the thought as a present to all our listeners of going somewhere like Harper's Island Wetlands Nature Reserve to get away 
from the hustle and bustle and often the high pressure environment that can be Christmas. Uh, you know, you can go for a walk with the family or go for a walk on your own. And Harper's Island is fantastic for those living in Cork or in the Munster area. It's not too far away. We've got a two kilometre uh, nature trail and we've also got two viewing hides so even if the weather is not the greatest over Christmas you can still go there and there's lovely areas to sit down and look out onto the wetlands and believe it or not only last week at high tide we counted over three and a half thousand wetland birds wow an incredible sight and just yesterday they counted 42 little egrets I mean, 50 years ago, you would have been lucky to see three mm. in the whole island of Ireland. And we had 42 at Harper's Island. Oh, that's incredible, during Jim. The week. Yeah. Now, no so, dogs and no bicycles. No, unfortunately. I mean, we want to keep it for the wildlife and for people who want to come and just have a quiet walk away from it. There's a greenway. We've got a fantastic greenway just at the entrance, which runs from Glanmire all the way down towards Carry Tool. So, like, if people have a dog or bicycles... There is a huge area that's not on the road. It's specifically for walkers and uh, cyclists where you could bring them. So, like, it's not like there's nowhere in the area to walk your dog or or go for a cycle. Well, it's a lovely idea, Jim. And we'll give some more suggestions next Monday. But first, Alan McCarthy, who's the barn owl expert with Birdwatch Ireland based in Cork, was out with Jim the other day and they were chatting about barn owls. Shall we have a listen, Jim? Absolutely, Derek. So they used to breed historically. Uh, The last confirmed breeding of short-eared owls in Ireland would have been in the 1980s. Um, But since then, there have been possible records of breeding, but nothing confirmed. The short-eared owl now is mostly a winter visitor to Ireland. Um, They mostly occur in coastal areas from late autumn through to early spring. Um, So this winter, uh, we're actually seeing an exceptional um, influx of short-eared owls from uh, their more northerly breeding grounds in the UK, mostly in Scotland and Scandinavia as well and continental Europe. So normally in a normal year we might get maybe one or two individuals scattered fairly loosely along the coast uh, but this winter we're seeing um, short-eared owls turn up very much, pr- pretty much along every location along the coast and in some cases they're turning up in multiples so in East Cork there's one area where there's over four short-eared owls uh, have been recorded um, so they're they're very much kind of in large numbers this winter. We don't really know the reason for this at the moment, like it's most likely to do with uh, the breeding season that they had. They probably had a very good breeding season on their breeding grounds, so there's a lot of birds now that are coming over. And it's also possible that it's to do with weather conditions. So like typically in colder winters, you tend to get these sorts of species moving further west into warmer areas. So they typically move further west into Ireland. Well, I think now we'll get on to the barn owls. Um, they're iconic every kid in school hears about the barn owl there's stories about barn owls how wise old owl and all those sorts of things but you've been putting your finger on the pulse of the health of the population of barn owls here in Ireland and in particular in the southwest. Could you just give us a kind of an idea of, of how they're doing? Because we've heard so much about rat poison causing the numbers to, to decline and that for a while it was like we, we thought we were going to lose them all. Is that still the case? Going back, looking back in, over the kind of history of the barn owl population, specifically in Cork, So back in the late 1960s, the first bird atlas um, occurred. So the first bird atlas was from 1968 to 1972. And that survey showed that barn owls were relatively widespread in Cork. There was a second bird atlas then around 20 years later in the late 1980s. And that atlas showed that there was a significant decline in numbers over that 20-year period. Cut to around 20 years later when there was the third birth atlas, which was 2007-2011, and there had been a bit of an increase, but not a substantial increase in numbers. So overall, between the late 1960s and around 2012, there was an approximately 39% decline in barn owl numbers nationwide. That's in terms of breeding range. Um, So that significant decline led to them being included on the red list of birds of conservation concern. Um, So they're still on that list now, but since sort of the third bird atlas between 2007 and 11, we hadn't really done a complete survey of the barn owl population in Cork. 
so we weren't really sure how the population was doing. Um, there was evidence that the population had been increasing over the last few years, but it was, it was high time that we did a full population census in Cork. So this summer we decided to uh, undertake a full county survey of Barnells in, in the county. So the survey was uh, very kindly supported by Cork County Council and the National Parks and Wildlife Service. We surveyed over 400 sites in total. Um, so we identified potentially suitable ruined structures such as derelict castles and derelict houses which would be fairly typical for Barnells to nest in. And then we went out between May to July and we searched for signs of Barnell occupancy. We also surveyed sites that we had uh, surveyed previously, where we had both uh, found signs of barnal activity and where we hadn't found any signs, but the sites were suitable. So that survey, it included a lot of field work. Um, there was a lot of sites to cover. Cork is the best county for barnels, of, of course. course. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of work to do. Um, thankfully, what we found, though, was that the population is certainly increasing in the county. Um, in total, we found 143 sites that were occupied by barnels. Um, of those 143 sites, 114 of them were in S sites. Well, can I ask you a question? You mentioned about looking for signs. Yeah. It sounds like a detective uh, it, it really investigation. Is. So can you describe what you would do and what sort of signs you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. So, well, just to set an example. So we're stood in a derelict old house here at the moment on Harpers Island. Um, so... Typically, when barnels occupy a site like this, um, they'd very often leave signs behind. So these signs uh, mostly include pellets. So pellets are the regurgitated fur and bones of the small mammal prey that they eat. Um, so barnels, they mostly feed on small mammals. You're talking rats, mice, shrews, voles. Um, so they eat them whole down the hatch in one and then anything that they can't digest, which is the fur and the bone, they regurgitate it as a pellet. Sorry for interrupting. No, you. no. How do they separate out the bits they're going to eat from the bits they're going to cough up? It's all done in their digestive system. They are able to kind of digest the meat of the small mammal prey and whatever stomach acids they have, it just doesn't digest the fur and the bone. So that's just left behind and it comes out as a pellet then. I see. Typically, barnels would regurgitate around two pellets every 24 hours. So if they're using a building, you'll very often find those pellets within the building. Um, so you're kind of looking down mostly, looking for pellets on the ground. And quite often as well, barnels will molt feathers during the breeding season. So again, if you find a barnel feather at an old building, then that's a very good sign that barnels are using it. So then typically, once we had found signs of barnel activity, either in the form of pellets or molted feathers, then we'd go back at night and we'd listen out for chicks. So we say that chicks have a snoring call. So the snoring call isn't actually them snoring, as we would. It's them begging for food. The begging call, apparently, it sounds like an old man snoring. Um, it kind of does, in fairness. But um, normally, when you tell someone that you're just serving barnel chicks and listening for them snoring, they kind of give you a funny look, <laughs> unsurprisingly. And, and if I wanted to build an S-Box or get an S-Box or get involved, what's the best thing to do? So the best thing to do is to go to the Birdwatch Ireland website um, and our YouTube channel as well. So on YouTube we have a video um, all about Barnell nest boxes. It goes through in detail how to make the Barnell nest boxes, both uh, nest boxes for barns and also those for trees. Um, and we also show how to install them safely as well. Um, and through that video in the description we have a few guidance documents um, and on the Cork Birdwatch uh, website as well we have a guidance document about how to make the Barnell nest boxes. If you need any help then contact Birdwatch Ireland and we'd be more than happy to uh, give advice as to where to install boxes and we can direct you to any local groups as well that are initiating or starting Barnell nest box projects. Alan? Thank you very, very much indeed. No problem. I hope you have a great Christmas and I Thank hope you have an incredibly successful 2024. Thanks very, Thanks much, very Jim. much, indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Jim Wilson and Alan McCarthy. Details, as always, on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Aina Nilana, Richard Collins and Niall Hatch. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is Michelle Brown. Until next week, bye!